It would be okay if you clap for Suzanne, but... <laughs> I say that especially because she's filling in today. She got last-minute notification that she needed to sing this morning. Uh, we had something else planned, and uh, Katie Sharon was supposed to sing, and she wasn't feeling well. So unfortunately, she was not able to be with us today, but Suzanne... Uh, dutifully jumped in there as our music minister and decided to sing for us. So she, uh, she's certainly to be commended for that. And Robin as well for playing for her. Well, today we're starting a new series uh, for our fall series uh, in the book of Philippians or the letter to the Philippians. And if you need a moment to look that up and turn there, that's completely okay. It's a very small letter in the New Testament. And I've titled this series, as some of you might have seen in the Wednesday newsletter, Gospel Gratitude. Gospel Gratitude. Because that is really the whole point of the book. The whole book centers around this idea of rejoicing in what Christ has done. And because of what Christ has done, it enables believers, Christians, to have the grounding and the confidence to deal with suffering and to serve others. Christ's action on the cross and in the empty tomb produces this deep gratitude, this deep confidence, this grounding, this rootedness, which enables the believer to follow, and I'm going to use a word you see on the screen, the cruciform way of humility and self-denial. So let me tell you about this word cruciform, because I intend to use it probably two dozen times this morning. This word cruciform is a combination term of crucify and formation. So it is to be conformed by and to the cross. It is to be shaped by the cross of Jesus. And so what I mean here is the denial of self in following Christ to the cross. It is being shaped by who Jesus is. And there is a case to be made that the letter to the Philippians is really all about that. In chapter 2, when we get there in a few weeks, we'll see this great hymn about how Christ, who though he is in the form of God, becomes a servant by taking on the form of humans and coming to our world and suffering in our place. And it's really that hymn that sort of shows the entire book of Philippians. Everything can sort of be seen through the lens of that hymn. You can take that section in Philippians 2 and turn it over and over and see every bit of the book or the letter through that lens. I had a couple of options with this sermon. We could have done verses 1 through 11, and that was an idea, and jumped straight into it. But I decided instead to extend it one more week and just cover two verses the introductory verses, which I don't always like to do because generally you know my pattern. I like to just go right through a passage of Scripture verse by verse, phrase by phrase, line by line. But I decided instead to do it this way so I can show you some of the big highlights in the book of Philippians so I can show you the main message of the letter and how it fits with the other parts of Scripture. So we're just going to look at those introductory verses, and I want to show you uh, some things out of those first two verses that I think are important. So if you're turned there or um, 
I don't know, what do you say? You don't turn there, pressed there? That doesn't sound right on a device. But if you've made it there in Philippians chapter 1, we'll pick up right there in verse 1 with the very first half of verse 1 where Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. Here we have the authors, or really the main author, along with his protege or his disciple, Timothy. So Paul is writing this to his um, well-known believers here in Philippi. And now notice how they're identified. He says, servants of Christ Jesus. At least that's the way the English Standard Version that I read from has it. But servants is not really a... Uh, good translation. It's kind of a tame translation. It's not really an accurate translation. There are more common words for servants in the Greek language, the language of the New Testament. But the word Paul uses here, and in most of his letters, by the way, is better translated as slaves or bond servants, which is a particular type of slave. And you'll see that, by the way, as you look in your modern translations, that a number of those English translations have chosen to translate it as just that. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And this language of slavery to Christ runs throughout the New Testament. And I know it strikes our ears as odd, and it's really difficult to even use this language now in light of uh, conversations going on in our culture. But really, if we can just step aside from all of that for a moment and go back 2,000 years, this is really the fundamental point of being a Christian. Just listen to what Jesus says in Mark 8, for example. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's that cruciformity, being conformed to the cross. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is what it means to follow Christ, to be a disciple, to be a Christian. It means a life of self-denial being conformed to the cross of Christ. It is a cruciform life wherein we die wherein this old part of us dies and something takes its place. Namely, the image of Christ begins to form in us. There's a famous reflection on this by the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom I quote probably more than anyone else, I think, at this point. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, just as a reminder, was killed in a Nazi concentration camp right before the end of World War II at the age of 39. But he has this important reflection on his most pop- in his most popular book, and I think he captures exactly what it means to follow Christ. He writes, "...to endure the cross is not a tragedy." It is the suffering which is the fruit or the product of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. So that's what Christianity is calling us to. That's what Jesus says. He says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Or elsewhere, Jesus says things like, no one who loves father or mother or child or home or goods more than me is worthy of me. And it seems really harsh, but it's this exclusive allegiance to Jesus. A few sentences later, Bonhoeffer adds, if our Christianity has ceased to be serious about discipleship, and by discipleship all he means is following Jesus, if we have watered down the gospel into emotional uplift, 
which makes no costly demands and which fails to distinguish between natural and Christian existence, then we cannot help regarding the cross as an ordinary everyday calamity, as one of the trials and tribulations of life. Now Bonhoeffer wrote these words in 1937. Hitler had come to power four years before. Um, the whole of Europe is on the brink of World War II, uh, and Hitler's continuing to increase his power. And yet, Bonhoeffer's words, almost 100 years old at this point, are so applicable for us today. Just look at what he says. That if we have watered down the gospel into emotional uplift, how common in our own culture to talk about Christianity as just a therapeutic way to make us feel better. And that's a byproduct of our culture that that's what we want. Or, or how common in our culture to not talk about the demands of Christianity or to, to distinguish, I love the way he puts this, between natural and Christian existence. In other words, what he's saying is there's a way to live as a human being, but there's a way to live as a Christian. And they're different. And they demand different things. Following Christ demands something different. And, and he says, if, if we continue to insist that we can just sort of tack the cross, tack Christianity onto our lives, then of course the cross and the demands of Jesus are going to seem like burdens. They're going to seem crazy. They're going to seem like lunacy. And they do. When, when you read the hard sayings of Jesus, when he says things like, take up your cross and follow me, we tend to hear that with, you know, the sort of seriousness that Jesus demands. Bonhoeffer goes on to explain that the first act of cruciformity is the call to abandon the attachments of this world, to abandon the attachments of this world. Now, I'm talking here about the letter of Philippians or the letter to the Philippians, and Paul was the author Paul himself had experienced this disattachment or this abandoning the attachments of this world. And when we get to Philippians chapter 3, he's going to talk at length about this. He's going to talk about how all of the things he had in life, all of the prestige and all of the value and all of the accolades he had achieved as a human being and in his particular field as a Jewish leader, all of that is worthless because what matters to him is being conformed to Christ, to knowing Christ, to being conformed to the cross. Do you remember Paul's story, by the way? He tells it a few times in the book of Acts, three times in fact. The first time we hear it is in Acts chapter 9. He was this up-and-coming Jewish leader. A young Jewish leader had the world in front of him, at least within that profession. He had this incredible pedigree and reputation. He had studied under one of the best rabbis. But on the way to persecute these early Christians, on the way to Damascus, he has this supernatural encounter with the risen Christ. Christ sort of blows up his world, and he calls him to a life of cruciformity. In fact, he calls him to a life of suffering. The verses we read there in Acts 9 is that Paul will learn how much he will have to suffer for the cross. And Paul speaks about this elsewhere, by the way, in his letters. For example, in Galatians 2.20, he writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's not soft language at all. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, the old Paul who lives, but Christ who lives in me. 
See how he's being conformed to Christ. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's not just blowing smoke. Paul understands this. And what is more, Paul is in prison when he writes this letter to the Philippians. And why is he in prison? For preaching Christ. And not only is he in prison... His death is looming before him. As we get to the end of chapter 1, he'll start to say, you know, I don't actually know if I'm going to live or die. I don't know if I'm going to get out of this situation. I, I don't know what's going to happen next, and I really don't know which is better. That's a man that's crazy on one hand, but it's also a man who is conformed to the cross of Jesus. He shows us exactly what it's about. The question we have to put to ourselves is, are we willing to abandon the attachments of this world? Are we willing to abandon the attachments of this world? Is the value of Christ and what he has done on our behalf so huge in our minds and hearts that we would take up the call to cruciformity, that we might identify with Paul and Timothy and say, we are slaves of Christ Jesus. Is that the mark that we would use to identify our lives? See, in our culture, especially in the American culture, even though we're rapidly moving into this post-Christian culture, it's still so easy to tack Christianity onto our lives, isn't it? It's so easy to just say, well, here's my life, and on top of that, I'm a Christian. Other than church attendance and maybe, you know, this personal belief system and having some Bibles sitting around in our house and maybe some Christian art, Christianity doesn't really have to show itself in our lives and yet we can still claim it. Paul's coming at this from a different world, a world where claiming to be a Christian meant he could be thrown in a hole in the ground that they called prison. He, he could suffer, he could die, all of this could happen to him. We try to maintain, on, in our culture though, we try to maintain a comfortable life and still be conformed to the cross when the two often stand opposed to each other. See, it's not a matter of balance. It's actually that they're just in conflict with each other. It's not actually possible. Recall what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24. No one, no one can serve two masters. Why is that? Why can't you serve two masters? Why can't you serve, say, the American dream of upward mobility and success? And even a pastor, by the way, right? Career. Why, why, can't, why can't I serve that and Christ? Well, Jesus tells us. For, or because, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, you'll see here, money in the English translation. I had, our, uh, I had Gina add in the slide for me, stuff, because the traditional translation is the Greek word mammon, which really isn't just money, but it is stuff. And in the context of Matthew 6, it's all about stuff, things, things that are important to us, things we prioritize, things that we value, stuff. And Jesus says you can't serve this life and me. And that's a tough saying of Jesus, isn't it? It's hard to hear. It's hard to think about this. But it makes sense when Paul writes Paul and Timothy slaves of Jesus Christ. It makes sense when the very brother of Jesus identifies that way as well in the book of Jude, for example. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Not a brother, a slave. It's shocking language. 
So this calls for us to consider our priorities, doesn't it? To consider what we value in life, to take stock and inventory of what's important to us and, and what we're following after, what we're devoted to, what our heart really cares about. And a good way to do this is to think about what makes you angry, what gets you emotional, because right there is going to tell you what you value. Another way is to think about your time. What gets the majority of your time? Because that's going to tell you something as well. And then finally, where is your money going? Right? Because that tells you about what's important to you as well. And Jesus presses us with this very difficult language. No one can serve two masters. So as individuals, we ask ourselves as our chief identifier, our slavery to Christ. And as a congregation, are we committed to and encouraging one another to greater cruciformity, to greater Christ-likeness? Now, all of this seems like a drudgery, right? It's like, man, this is, this is uh, something we don't want to hear. But the point of all of this is that it isn't a drudgery at all. Not at all. And the point of Philippians is that this isn't a drudgery. Everything else in this world will let us down. Everything else in this world will let us down, even the very best things, right? Even wonderful, good things like families and good jobs and meaningful relationships and meaningful hobbies, all of those things will still let us down. Our health, whatever, fill in the blank, all of it is an attachment that will fail to hold us when all is said and done. I couldn't think of a better analogy. This isn't a very good one, but it's the best I can do. And I've thought all morning to replace it, and I still can't replace it. The best I could come up with is that these attachments in our life are like those little gadgets rock climbers use that stick in between rocks. And, and I don't know how in the world they hold, but they do for some time. But the thing is, they don't always hold. They may feel strong, but eventually, at some point, they are going to pop out and the rock climber will drop. That's a lot like the attachments in our life. We put all of these holds and, and try to tie ourselves into this life and, and move along this sheer face of a rock climbing upward. And at some point, one of those things isn't going to hold and it's going to jolt us. And we're going to wake up to the reality that, man, I'm on a cliff and these attachments aren't going to hold. That's sort of what it means to be human. It's kind of a scary thing. Then additional, uh, in addition to this, in, in Romans 6, Paul talks about slavery to Christ and slavery to sin. Now, we use this word sin, and I think we just totally botch it. Because when the Bible talks about sin, it's not talking about some arbitrary list of rules that we break. It's talking about this capital S sin that enslaves humans and causes us to be less human, less what we were created to be. Think of Romans 3.23. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all were stamped with the image of God, but sin strips us and others of their humanity, of their image of God. It distorts that. It makes us less human. Now, I try not to do this often because, one, it's nerdy, but, two, it's overdone. I try not to use illustrations from The Lord of the Rings. There's too many pastors out there doing it, but I can't help it this morning. So if you've seen the movie or read the books, which bonus points if you've read the books, send me an email and you'll be in my inner circle. If you've read the books, <laughs> they're there. If you're familiar with the story, you know there's this creature known as Gollum. And I almost put him up on the screen I should have. It would have scared us. It would have woken you up. But, but Gollum is this creature in the story that was something like 
a hobbit, okay? Something like a hobbit. This is how nerdy we can get up here. Uh, but not a hobbit. And, and let me put it in our language. Something like a human, but not a human exactly. But in the story, there's this destructive power of lust and desire. This desire for this ring, this powerful ring that strips him of his humanity. So much so that over time, he looks nothing like he was created to be. And he acts nothing like he was created to be. No longer does he live in the real world. He lives in a cave in utter darkness, becoming less and less what he was made to be. J.R.R. Tolkien's good friend C.S. Lewis really pictures sin the same way in the book The Great Divorce. In The Great Divorce, hell was depicted as this place where people are further isolating themselves and becoming more and more focused on themselves, so much so that they become less recognizable as who they are. When you think about the trajectory of an everlasting life and you think about the power of sin or the power of righteousness— and the things that Christ wants to give and do in our lives, you can see that these trajectories over a great deal of time can either make us less human or they can make us more human. So Jesus tells us this is no drudgery at all. In fact, he tells us a parable about this. Listen to what he says in Matthew 13, 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Okay, he covered it up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, pay close attention to the text. In his, did you catch it? Joy. And not in his drudgery. Not in his misery. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. All the attachments to this world. He abandons everything so that he can get this treasure. Abandoning our attachments to this world in order to be in Christ, to be united to him, to be conformed to his image, these are the greatest joys we as humans can experience. And they are what allow us to be fully human as God created us to be. Can you imagine if this man in the parable had discovered the treasure, covered it up, and then went home to keep all of his stuff? Right? That would have been bizarre. We'd all say, he's crazy. There's a treasure in the field. What's he doing? But our resistance to Christ is the same. Or our attempts to sort of balance everything we want over here with following Christ is the same idea. It's like seeing the treasure in Christ and yet going home to all the stuff that really at the end of the day will let us down. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote in his speech, The Weight of Glory. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, what Jesus is getting at in this parable is there is joy ahead of us. And when Lewis here in this quote talks about our desires being too weak, he's talking about something that I use often, this term affections. The Christian life is a daily stirring of our affections unto the joy of serving Christ. That's the Christian life. Stirring our hearts, stirring our love, stirring our emotions so that we will see the value in Christ above all things. 
And we'll see that joy throughout the book of Philippians. In fact, this joy and rejoicing, all of that language is the key theme throughout the book in spite of the fact that, as I've told you, Paul finds himself in prison contemplating his own death when he writes this letter. One of my New Testament professors gave the title to this book, Joy in the Jailhouse. It's not an inaccurate title at all. The only thing I would add to it is this. There is joy because that joy is rooted in a life of cruciformity, conforming to the way of Jesus. Okay, it's not just a book of self-help about how to be joyful in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. It is the joy of being a slave to Christ Jesus. All right, that's verse 1a. Good thing we're doing two verses, right? Let's finish verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints. That word saints is what we'll focus on here. In Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the elders or overseers and deacons. And just in, incidentally, notice the two offices in the church. We have elders or pastors and deacons. Now, Paul has a close relationship with these believers in Philippi by all indication. He had some role in starting the church there. You can read about that in Acts 16. But notice how he refers to them. Great, or they are saints in Christ Jesus. Saints literally means holy ones. Holy ones in Christ Jesus. Why does he call them holy? Because they are united to Christ Jesus. Notice it is in Christ Jesus. And the path of sainthood is continued union with Christ so that we are conformed to his image. Philippians 2 gets at this in that Christ hymn. Right before the Christ hymn it says, or Paul instructs the Philippians to have this mind in themselves which is theirs in Christ Jesus. And then goes on to say, who, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to hold on to, but instead released that and became a human, and not only a human, a servant, who died in obedience to death on a cross. So it's the way of humility. That's the sainthood. So servants and saints, right? Two words, servants and saints. That's what it means to be a Christian, or again, perhaps more properly, slaves and saints, the life of the Christian is the life of cruciformity. This pathway to holiness, to sanctification, is through slavery to Christ and constantly being conformed to his image. The more united to Christ we are, the greater we will be transformed. Think of it this way. The more we release other attachments and are attached to Christ, the more we are conformed to Christ. Okay, so Christianity is not just about disassociation or disattachment, it is also about attaching to Christ, union with Christ Jesus. I guess the other person I quote quite frequently is this old Christian theologian named John Calvin. A lot of people associate him with predestination, but his real book or the point of his books, the, the two volumes he writes is not about predestination at all. The real point is union with Christ. That's the idea of being united to Christ. And throughout this letter to the Philippians, Paul will say this phrase time and time and time again, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And we'll have to fix that in our minds of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. A.W. Tozer wrote, the purity 
and holiness we desperately need is through our own works and efforts. No, he didn't write that. He said it's by the presence of God, that union with Christ. It comes from an encounter with God like Paul had on the road to Damascus. It comes by the fire of God in the human heart like Moses had at the burning bush. Cleansing and purity come by the indwelling Christ. Christ in me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what Paul wrote. Hence, Paul says they are saints, not by virtue of their own action, but in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Then he adds this appropriate greeting in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a pretty standard greeting for Paul. But I've, also, I've always found it deeply meaningful and significant because of these two words he chooses to emphasize. Grace and peace. In fact, I've preached an entire sermon before focusing on these two words because I think they capture the byproducts of the Christian life. These are the gifts of Christ to us. When we shudder at letting go of attachments, when we think that sounds really hard, when we're overwhelmed by thinking about the demands of Jesus, when we look at being a Christian and we say, this just doesn't seem doable for any human, the answer is you're absolutely right. It's not. But we also look and we see that here is what is offered to us. Grace and peace. That's what Jesus offers. These two words effectively sum up the Christian life. There is this boundless grace offered to us in Christ. It's a gift we don't deserve, but it's a gift that changes our entire life like a treasure discovered in a field. We don't earn it. It's there waiting for us. It's provided through Christ's own humility and sacrifice. Again, we'll see that in chapter 2 so clearly. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, willingly became human to suffer for our sake. And that suffering breaks the chains of those forces that enslave us. Namely, sin, capital S, Satan, and death. Those things that we can't seem to overcome. Those things that run like a thread through human history. The things that show itself in our own lives. The things that embarrass us and cause us shame and guilt. All of the stuff that we know are, is there. It's the human predicament. But the cross isn't just about getting people into heaven. It's about dismantling the powers of sin, Satan, and death. Through his suffering, Jesus does that. And as the Bible says, through his suffering, we are healed. There is this entire comprehensive healing that Jesus does. Namely, breaking that chain of sin. Keeping the accusation and the power of Satan away from us. And then winning victory over that great enemy, death itself. And that is grace. That's all grace. And this grace leads to peace. And we have a tendency to trivialize this word and make it much smaller than what Paul means by it here. We sort of trivialize it into, well, peace is this feeling I get inside. It makes me warm and fuzzy. But peace in the Bible goes all the way back to that rich Hebrew word shalom, which carries a sense of completeness and fullness and wholeness. Remember what I said a few minutes ago about being fully human. The peace of God is that wholeness that enables us to be what we were created to be. It's that wholeness, that fullness of finally understanding this is what I was made for. 
of finally fulfilling the calling of God on our lives, of being what we were created to be. It's finding a hook that will actually hold as we hang on to this sheer cliff that we call life. That is what peace is. In a famous passage in the book of Philippians in chapter 4, Paul talks about rejoicing and then he says, make your requests known to God, and he says, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What he appears to mean there is that there's this incredible ability to let go of attachments when we are united to Christ. The reason I say that that's what he appears to mean is because just a few verses later, he'll talk about his own times of suffering and his times of plenty. And he'll say, you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content because I have the peace of God, the sense of wholeness, the sense of fullness. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can rest in Christ, and that is our perfect and complete wholeness. What we in our day might call fulfillment. So, in this opening greeting, verses 1 and 2, we hear so many of the notes that we're going to be listening to throughout the fall as we go through the letter to the Philippians. We hear these notes of cruciformity, being cruciformed to Christ, being, being conformed to his image, being conformed to the cross. We hear this note of uh, being a saint in Christ Jesus, of him accomplishing what we could never do for ourselves and having the confidence and grounding that in this life we will face trials and difficulties and yet Christ will ensure that we come to a happy end in his presence. And for now, we're left with the calling to servitude and sainthood. We're shown the way of the cross, which is that way of servitude and sainthood. Well, this morning, Pastor Chris is coming to lead us in our pastoral prayer. But before he comes, let me just offer an invitation to you. We have lots of things that I mentioned at the beginning, exciting things happening here at the church, things to get you involved in, things to help you form yourself in Christ. Our Sunday school classes aren't just there to fill time. They're there to help you cultivate the mind of Christ. They're there to help you make connections with other believers and to be cruciformed together, right? That's what it's all about. We have our Wednesday evening studies that we're going through right now, um, and, and we have that as an option. We have the children's ministries, all of these things. So if you're interested in that, we want to invite you to be part of this. We're excited about what's happening here. There are good things happening here. If you're watching online, we invite you to come and be part of this as well. But more importantly than anything to do with our particular congregation is your own relationship with Christ. And so the only thing I would say to you is if you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, we want to be there to help you with that. So we have a pastoral staff here. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. Then we've got Pastor Rupert, Pastor Chris. We've got our ministers that are all available to speak with you. Suzanne, our music minister, they're all available to talk with you and 
help you understand what we mean when we say following Christ or being a Christian. We would love to talk with you about that. You can find us after the service today or you can send us an email in the upcoming weeks and we would love to talk to you about that as well. And then finally, if you're a Christian who just needs prayer, just needs to talk, we're here for you as well and we would love to have those conversations. Pastor Chris is coming to pray now and lead us um, through that time of prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your presence here with us today. Lord, we thank you so much for the instructions we receive week by week. Lord, we've been challenged by your word today to truly put you first. Lord, as we all struggle with the things of this world and following you. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to not focus in on all the things and the money and everything else that in our society we're really bred to believe that that's what life is all about. Lord, help us to realize that we need to possibly give up some of those things so that we can walk with you. Lord, I truly believe we can't have everything of the world and be a genuine Christ follower. Sometimes life is hard. We have to make decisions. We have to make choices. And Lord, I pray that we would be a a body of believers that would truly choose you. Lord, just as we talked about Paul this morning, once we have that life-changing experience with Christ then our lives will never be the same. Lord, we know we're imperfect, and I pray that you would forgive us when we fall short of your expectations for us. Lord, help us to truly seek you with our whole heart. Lord, I pray you would just shape us and mold us into the Christ followers that you want us to be. Lord, I pray that you would just help each of us to go out into this world And to love others as you do. And to shine the light of Christ to everybody we meet. Lord, we need to see the value of being a Christ follower. That that is the most important thing to us. To where even though in our society we don't want to be slaves to anybody or anything. Lord, help us to realize that if we give our lives to you that that is the path that we have to true joy and to true peace. Lord, I just thank you for loving us. Thank you for suffering for us and paying the price for us so that we can stand in a right relationship with you. Lord, may we glorify and honor you in all we do and all we say and all we think. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.